Kia ora, time to continue our series on New Zealand's sporting history. Actually, we don't have to go too far back for this one. May the 1st, 2023, was when local ultramarathon swimmer and environmentalist John Riddler set off on an audacious mission to swim from Karaka Bay on Altair, Great Barrier Island, all the way to Campbell's Bay on Auckland's North Shore. That is, according to, Joe, to, according to Jono's tracker, 99.1 kilometres. Uh, and that made it a record-breaking, non-stop, ultra-distance, open-water swim. The previous record was 80.8 kilometres. That was a double-crossing of Lake Taupo. And in the final stages of the record-breaking swim, 33-year-old Jono pushed through some extremely challenging conditions. More than 25 knot winds, choppy seas. But he's here to tell the, sta- uh, tell the tale. John Riddler, hello. Kia ora. Uh, fantastic to be here. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you as well. I joked uh, that you did it in May and you finally stopped puffing and are able to talk about it. It's probably not far from the truth. It must have taken a lot of recovery. <laughs> yeah. Um, the body bounces back surprisingly quickly. Like I had some really interesting things going on physically immediately after the swim and probably for the first one to two weeks afterwards i was itching to get back in the water uh mm. just because i i love to swim but yeah. uh something that that has been holding me back is a bit of pain in my uh wrist which stemmed from uh that swim from uh from out there so yeah look the, uh, some interesting things going on in, in the bottom immediately after but yeah, I, I was a little bit surprised with how quickly I bounced back. Mm, great. Um, yeah, and people understand why your wrist might be a bit, a bit sore. Have you worked out how many times you would have actually um, taken a stroke um, in the 99.1 kilometres? Thousands and tens of thousands probably. Yeah, I, I don't have any kind of an exact measurement, but my best guess is about one stroke per meter. Yeah. And so probably about 50,000 that I put through my right and 50,000 through my left there or thereabouts. So <laughs> yeah, it's a, a few times turning over the arms. Yeah. And is it 99.1 kilometers is the crow flies or once you factor in the kind of the, the, I suppose the jinking that you've got to do to get to your destination? Yeah, that that's as the swim went, so yeah. the slight variations from the direct path. The direct path is about 95 k's. That's not uh, too so bad, was, eh? That's not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. There, there wasn't too much variation from that. Yeah. Um, okay, let's start at the very beginning. What led you to do this swim? Oh, well, um, I mean, this swim in particular, I, I had the idea for swimming from Great Barrier Island back to Auckland in, I, I think it was 2019. I first wrote about it in 2019. Uh, I had just recently completed the Cook Strait swim, and there was something about swimming from Aotea that just attracted me. And I, I do have some history to the island. My parents met at Karaka Bay. Huh. Uh, and I spent a number of summers there growing up. So I did have this connection with the island. The other part of it at the time was nobody had uh, completed that swim. There had been, as far as I was aware, one attempt by Sandra Blewett, uh, and, and she made it part of the way through before getting blown out by the weather. So the idea of 
being able to explore that, being able to adventure that was really attractive, really alluring. Uh, this massive, obviously, mental and physical challenge, a way of connecting my past uh, with uh, with my present and, and then future. But then later on in the piece, something else that uh, really motivated me and, and uh, became quite a significant why underlining this swim was for environmental protection and marine conservation yeah. specifically, and of the Hauraki Gulf. Uh, and that really became a, a big motivator for me uh, as I started to pull this swim together. Tell us about the big swims you'd done before this. I had, uh, I, I mean, just to talk about some that uh, people will probably recognise the names of. So Cook Strait in, in 2019, uh, the length of Lake Topo in 2020, Fovo Strait in 2021, and then 2022, uh, I became the first person to swim from Matapuri to the Poor Knights Islands and back. So these were all challenges that were leading me up, I guess, to mm. the Great Barrier Swim in, in a way. Mm-hmm. Of course, I looked at them as uh, in their own individuality, but um, they were preparing me in a sense. Yeah. I've seen the poor nights from the mainland. It's not close. <laughs> no, but just a beautiful swim, that one. Um, we started at, I think it was about 6 a.m. in the morning. It was still dark and the sun was just coming up. And the amount of marine life along the journey from Metapuri to the poor nights, there was just salp and jellyfish uh, and the water was so amazingly crystal clear the night before when we went out for a bit of a reconnaissance we came across two workups around the coast and for me coming from Auckland we see workups once in a while but like this it was just so alive and then as we made it to the poor nights um you know the amazing marine reserve out there snapper kingfish all kinds of different stuff happening so yeah it was there was a lot to keep my eyes entertained yeah was well, world 12, famous, isn't it? Twelve or thirteen. You, yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. So you did actually take a moment to enjoy it. Uh, yeah, I, I, at the turnaround, so it's it's tapu to touch the island. So what I did was I swam into the Rico Rico Rico. I'm probably pronouncing that terribly, mm-hmm. but a massive sea cave. I think it's the largest sea cave in the world. Um, swam into that as a turnaround point. And uh, I, t- I took a moment to stop there, ate a, a chocolate bar, and and then just swam around with the fish for a few minutes. And then it was like, okay, well now we've got to go back and swim another twenty five odd k's back to back to the mainland now. Gosh. And, and am I right in thinking that initially in your life you weren't actually particularly good at swimming? No, not at all. So I. I really loved sports growing up and I did quite a few different sports uh, like golf, cricket, tennis, football and I was pretty good at whatever I tried my hand at but swimming was not one of those sports and it wasn't one that I enjoyed as well following the black line wasn't really for me. Uh, I did learn to swim lessons for about four years or so which was sensible because we spent a lot of time around the ocean and in the ocean growing up Uh, so I'm really thankful that that I got that base and obviously that served me later on in life as well. But uh, as soon as I was able to convince my parents to stop 
with uh, with the swimming lessons, I was out of there and, and focusing in, on football and, and other sports that I actually enjoyed. And then later in life, not too much later, but in my early 20s, I returned back, uh, back into swimming. And did an ocean swim, swim across Auckland Harbour, decided to do a bit more of it. What was it about it that appealed? There was something in me that was just drawn to the idea of testing myself. Earlier that same year in 2011, I had had a bad snowboarding accident when I was living in Canada. And that, after a period of months and returning to New Zealand, I was led back to swimming and back to the pool as a way of rehabbing that shoulder. And then later that same year, uh, my dad and my brother were doing this open water swimming event and they talked to me about this and I just didn't know whether I could swim three kilometres across the open ocean and it, it really scared me. I mean, it's not open ocean in the in the same way that Cook Strait is, of course, but uh, you, you're out there in the in the depths and um, I just didn't know whether I could do that. But, but that challenge, the idea of seeing if I could do it or not really pulled me in. And so that was really what kick-started it for me. I, I did a number of swims of a similar distance over the next five years or so. And then in 2016, I decided that, again, it was time for a challenge that I needed to push myself and really get outside of my comfort zone. I've, I've found, or at this time, I, I think I was starting to really see that there was the, this link between searching outside of my comfort zone and uh becoming a better person and so that uh in 2016 that led me to to doing a, a 10 kilometer swim and that really kick-started the journey into everything that i've done since so it's it's never been intentional it's just kind of happened naturally yeah. one thing's led on to the other and something's inside you uh, driving you though yeah definitely and uh i've tried to explore why that is mm. I don't know. It's it's a really hard question to ask. People say like, "What is that thing?" But I don't know. There, there is just something there. <laughs> that, yeah. I, I, and just to linger innate. on it a bit, is it is it an external yeah. thing? Do you think it's um, like wanting to prove yourself to the world, or you know, is it is it something to do with how other people see you, or is it? driven from inside and I mean either answer is is fine but um might help us understand it a little bit better for people who don't have that drive mm. yeah I've, I have thought a lot about this whether I'm uh getting dragged or I'm pushing myself <laughs> yeah so is is there something that is so subconsciously hidden that mm. I'm not even aware of it that is pulling me uh and it feels like it's a some kind of a drive but I I don't know what that thing could be. So I've, I've just got to say that it is some kind of an internal drive. Fair enough. And for me, it's this desire to, as, as humans, I think it is quite innate that we want to grow. Uh, and for me, it's understanding, well, what are my limits or what does that look like? And, and what am I capable of? Yeah. And I think the one of the greatest uh, tragedies would be that I get to the end of my life and I haven't, hmm at least tried to unearth what that is. 
I mean, some um, people so would reg- some people would regard that as a su- success, getting to the end of your life and never testing your limits. <laughs> you would have just made up differently, perhaps. Um, so you've set yourself yeah, it just as incredible. Feels like a yeah massive failure for me. If, yeah, yeah, if I, I understand that. that I understand that. Yeah. Um, so you set yourself this goal, uh, swimming from the. I'm talking to John Riddler, by the way. Uh, we're talking about swimming from Great Barrier Island, Aotea, to uh, mainland New Zealand to Auckland. Um, how do you train for something like that? Oh, you have to swim a lot, that's for sure. So I had a pretty good base coming into it. Like I had done uh, a lot of mileage in in the lead up to the other swims that I had done, uh, but there were probably two key things that I I really needed to prepare for, or maybe even three if I extended out. One was uh, the distance. Obviously, it's a, a pretty long distance. The second was the sleep deprivation, being awake for, uh, as it happened, or swimming for 33 hours, but being awake for longer than that. And the last one was uh, cold adaptation. And it, it wasn't that cold, but when you're in 19 degree water for 33 hours, you do need to have a level of, of cold adaptation. Mm. So each each of those different branches took on different forms during the training, the volume or the, the mileage that I had to put in. I built up to 100 kilometers uh, per week as, as my peak. Um, what that meant practically was over Easter week, I swam 32 hours across uh, the pool and ocean. Gosh. Doing back-to-back, uh, I did eight hours uh, over three days consecutively uh, in the pool and, and ocean. Um, some of those waking up at, uh, you know, one o'clock in the morning and going out and swimming in the ocean at two o'clock in the morning Gosh. to get that sleep deprivation and fatigue. Uh, so there, there, was a, there was a lot of uh, just mileage that I was putting through my body. Um, this is the, probably a stupid yeah. question, Jono. Is there any chance of falling asleep <laughs> while you're doing it? No, I, I, I'd, I'd have to be, I'd have to be so tired. <laughs> yeah, but well, well you swam for a, a day and a night and a day, so I mean, I think yeah. that qualifies as so tired, right? <laughs> Pretty tired. Yeah, I, I didn't really get. A sense of during the swim itself, you that feel sleepy, tiredness. No, like it just wasn't really there, and it was one of my concerns that that I would get so tired that, as you say, I would almost fall asleep in the water. Uh, but at, at the end of the swim, one of my remarks to uh, to a crewmate was that I, like I said, like I'm saying now, I just I wasn't tired. My body was. Uh, was sore for sure, and my muscles were very fatigued. But uh, I could have stayed up for a lot longer. And in fact, that's kind of what ended up happening in the hospital as well. Like I, I didn't get a very good sleep mm. between the. I think it was Tuesday. We started on Tuesday morning, uh, and Friday evening of that same week, I had eight hours of sleep. <laughs> like it was. It was just ridiculous because I, because I was so jacked up on adrenaline and yeah. all the rest of it, but it crashed eventually. And presumably pretty sore too. Yeah, yeah, totally. You decided what day you were going to do it, and I imagine you were watching the weather pretty closely. Yes, very closely. So we, 
had a crew of 16 people for this swim. Just to put this into context a little bit. Uh, so 16 people out on the water because we had three shifts of people supporting, rotating on the support boat alongside me. And that was really so they wouldn't get too fatigued that they had an opportunity to have a break as well. Now, this was 16 people that I asked to commit out of the goodness of their heart, basically, and, and that they were, everybody was really on board with the mission, but to uh, put their lives on hold for 10 days, which was the length of the window. And so we just had to hope against all hope that we got the best weather possible during that window, during that window of time. Now, this summer that's just passed, you'll probably remember was terrible. <laughs> it was incredibly windy. Yeah. And uh, we had a strong prevailing nor'easterly. And um, that did not let up coming into the end of April and into May. So as I'm as I've exited my peak and I'm into my taper, which is where I'm preparing for the swim and, and getting my body kind of rested before before this ordeal starts. I'm refreshing the weather forecast about a dozen times a day, which is a massive source of anxiety as well, so that I can uh, liaise with the skipper or skippers and then activate the crew. And what we ended up seeing is that window developed is that there was only going to be one opportunity, which was one day of good weather and one day of not good weather, which is exactly what happened. The forecast uh, was perfect from that perspective it played out as as uh, as the forecast predicted mm -hmm. it wasn't ideal but in the back of my mind i had this thought well my crew uh want to get on with their lives and <laughs> also it, 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 it's may and uh yeah. and the water's only getting colder yeah okay do you remember that uh, moment when you set off yeah um I mean, it was just a, trying to stay as calm as possible and, and just in the moment. But I remember uh, walking into the water and splashing myself with the water and, and thinking, oh, it's a, a little bit cool. Um, and then taking that first stroke. And, uh, yeah, and then from there, it was just taking a few 10,000 more and, <laughs> <laughs> and eventually we've made it to the end. But yeah, like a, a lot of, in, in those final moments, there was a lot of intensity, but also a lot of calm, just really trying to mm. um, settle myself. And, and we had done all the hard work, you know, and, and the actual event should just be a celebration of that as much as anything. Of course, it, it's, um, difficult in itself, but bringing everybody together, doing all the training, um, we were there and uh, we were ready. If you'd like to ask Jono a question, you can text it through to me on 2101. Steve wants to know if you were worried about sharks. Somewhat. Uh, we did have some mitigations around sharks and there were some areas that we were swimming around that were reasonably well populated like around um, Hotoru, uh, Little Barrier because we, we went around the 
the back end of that. Uh, I have seen sharks in Fovo Strait. I swam over a group of sharks circling in the water below me as I swam there. And so I had had an encounter and uh, it wasn't a negative encounter at all. It was a a beautiful moment. And and so you know that they're always there, uh, whether you see them or not. (laughs) They are there and, and the risk of a shark attack is so low. So that's the way that I rationalize it as well is that Yes, I spend a lot of time out in the ocean and I'm probably increasing my odds, but for the most part, they're and actually uh, entirely, they're, they're not interested in you and it's only yeah. accidental, really, if there's a shark attack. Yeah, your brain knows that. It would be natural, though, if you're feeling a bit nervy. We haven't mentioned Peter Burling and Blair Took yet. They were supporting you. How did they get involved in this? So when I started kind of get, getting the wheels turning on this, like I said earlier, I really wanted to use this um, to shine a light on something that was important to me and that, that uh, was marine conservation and specifically the health of the Hauraki Gulf. Uh, and so I partnered with Live Ocean. I had a mutual uh, connection and, and um, made a connection into the CEO of Live Ocean. And Blair Chuk and Peter Burling, of course, formed that charity. Uh, and, and it is a charity that's focused on marine conservation. So they'd seen in the around the world yacht race, just some of the tragic things that had been happening in the water and then hearing stories of people that had completed that yacht race before them, even not too long ago, that had seen all kinds of amazing and beautiful things in the water, but that they when Pete and Blair did it, they didn't see it all. So already they were starting to see the effects of degradation in global ecosystems. And so they were really spurred on to want to do something. Um, it wasn't like they uh, they had time and, and uh, were kind of bored and looking for something to do, of course, because uh, they're, they're busy people, but um, but just so motivated by, by that cause. And, They've completely got behind it, which is cool. You know, it's not sailing, but um, we're all water watermen and um, keen uh, keen supporters of the ocean, keen to do what we can to to make it better. Yeah. Do you feel like you got that message across? Like it um, had some benefits, as well as the the fact we're all thrilled watching you. And it was really exciting. Do you think some of those messages were communicated? I think so. Uh, there, there was a lot of discussion, at least that um, that I was across, uh, around how passion, uh, passionate people became about the ocean and aware of it. A lot of people, I think this was one of the main things and. Uh, a goal for us was was to increase the awareness around what was happening. And yes, the swim was a vehicle for bringing attention to that. Um, but there was a lot of discussion around uh, the health of the Hauraki that, that followed that. And I'd like to think that that led on from the swim. Now, Live Ocean, that was really only possible because of Live Ocean, I have mm. to say, they amplified the message in a way that, that I just couldn't and, and were able to channel that. Um, so we've seen some 
this year we've seen some positive action off the back of that as well uh, i was able to have uh, about a month or so month and a half afterwards uh, some conversations with mps and ministers in parliament right. uh, about what we had done uh, and, and that's uh, i mean it, it was a bizarre, bizarre kind of moment for me but it showed that um, there was interest in it and I think there is still interest in that so so we've just got to keep that going. A lot of people who um, find it difficult to go for a five minute walk without headphones on might be wondering what it's like to do 33 hours with presumably no music. What was going on in your head? Oh, all kinds. <laughs> there was all kinds of stuff going on. But in training, I became very good at, at entering into a meditative state and then staying there. And uh, when something tried to snap me out of that, returning to that as well. So um, it's it, it's almost a, um, a practice of mindfulness over an extended period of time that uh, is what I'm doing while moving my body. So the mind ultimately will determine whether you're successful in something like this. The body can try to stop you, but the mind can um, really cripple you if you, if you let it. So uh, just to dive a little bit further into that, um, one thing that I would do if uh, my mind started going off on a bit of a tangent and saying, you know, this is painful, why are you doing this? Um, during the course of the swim, I, I would come back to something simple uh, like counting. Huh. Um, just... Oh, are you still there, John? Or have you dropped out? Yes. Sorry. I, uh, um, were you about to? No, say I was just something? giving you an affirmative sound. I do it from time to time. Yeah, counting. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> counting. No worries, mate. Um, um, uh, yeah. So, so counting just one, two, three, four, up to ten uh, would be about my max. And what that did for me was uh, it put um, it gave something for my monkey mind to do. And uh, and then allowed my um, my rational mind to continue with the mission that I had set for myself. Right, and because the strange, to, do weird thoughts start entering? I think there's what I what I've seen in the past is there, there's voices that enter your head that challenge why you're doing what you're doing, and you've got to have a, a couple of tools to counter that. You need to have an answer for why you're doing that, uh, and it's got to be powerful enough. But you've also got to have a tool to be able to take yourself out of your own head and put yourself almost in another space so that your body can continue what it's doing. Um, because if you listen to those voices, and this happens for everybody, whether you're conscious of it or not, there's, there are um, voices that are uh, and influences within your brain that are not necessarily you that are guiding your actions. And, and if you're not conscious of them, they can derail you from what you actually yeah. want to achieve. We're coming up to three o'clock, so um, a couple of quest quick questions. When you finally finished, when you got there, was it euphoria? Uh, it was a, a sense of uh, relief, for one, that I was able to stop moving. Uh, and the, the second thing was a sense of pride, uh, just pride in what, what we as a team had, had achieved. Right on. And tell me about your symptoms in the uh, days afterwards. Well, some interesting ones. So uh, my 
throat and tongue were incredibly sore. I was taken to hospital immediately afterwards. I, I can talk about that. And uh, I was trying to eat some hospital food and uh, some sandwiches, and it would, it would just grate on me like mm. it was sandpaper. Well, that's uh, seawater, and, right? um, from the from the salt water, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that that was uh, pretty unpleasant. It passed within about five days. My tongue ended up shedding its top layer and then regenerating, <laughs> oh my um, gosh. which which was interesting. Uh, I was very swollen, just head to toe, um, and I, I don't quite know what that is. I've heard that there's pressure that's placed on uh, by the water on yeah. your body, and then once you're out of that environment... Um, Jono, I'm, I'm going to jump goes. in. We're out of time. I'm sorry. I can't wait to hear what you do next, and congr- congratulations on this huge achievement. Thanks for telling us about it today.